And so it's the cell swelling in your brain that concerns us the most. And when the brain swells a lot, it's it's in a, a skull, so it's in a contained box. And if it swells a lot, it can end up herniating out the bottom. And that's very rare, but in that's the way to think about it, is that's the point we don't want to get to. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, who does all those things as well, Steph Gaskell. How are you going, Steph? You got withdrawal from post-Olympics? Yes, I think we, yeah, we both do, don't we? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's... It's a struggle. It's a struggle. Uh, but I think we're both saying we're actually, um, we're usually pretty productive, Alan, but now like it did kind of sort of lag her off, I guess, when, when the Olympics started. So yes, uh, we're both back into our firing form, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, so yeah. Um, this week though, I've taken up a new sport. What's that? Well, <laughs> my flatmate, Kate, as you know how she's been injured, she thought yep. it would be a good idea to get a skateboard for when she was injured because then she'd be able to, like, lie on the skateboard on her stomach and kind of, like, um, <laughs> you know, make herself around, around the house and get, and get to stuff. So she purchased the skateboard thinking she'd use it. This is one of those things that only ever ends in trouble and more injuries, you realise. <laughs> well, this is what I told her. So she ended up not really using it a heck of a lot. But then she was like, when, you know, COVID um, number six has happened, she's like, all right, we've got to try and think of something fun each day. And she's like, so today what we'll do is we'll get you on the skateboard and I'll coach you. And I'm like, so how's that fun for like me? <laughs> You're just yep. going to watch me fall on my ass. <laughs> but yep. I did it, Alan, and I reckon Kate, like she was, she was somewhat proud of my first go. I didn't fall, fall down or anything. I didn't do any tricks. I didn't go on the ramp yet, but yeah. Mm. <laughs> you, so you're you, channeling your inner thirteen-year-old as <laughs> as they all were in Tokyo. <laughs> so what about you? What did what have you been up to? Uh, well, not skateboarding, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> obviously, uh, lockdown again since our last episode. We got five days back at school this time. We had four days last time, then we had two weeks of lockdown, then we got five days of school Whoa. and then two weeks of lockdown. Uh, so it's it's just sort of been Olympics during the day and kids with schooling bits and pieces and then trying to get a bit of work done at night time. And, yeah, that's, that's about it really on Zwift a little bit. Yep. And uh, as you said, you know, post-Olympics, Nothing to watch, but the Vuelta starts, Vuelta España in four days, and then back into Grand Tour cycling. Awesome, awesome. So you can go on your uh, your, your your Wahoo and um, and watch watch them ride and pretend you're there with them. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here on the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common questions that people ask about nutrition for running, cycling, or triathlon, sort of things that people are commonly debating with their mates, whether it's out during training or before or after. Uh, and we just 
invite an expert uh, and also an athlete to provide their perspective on it, uh, break it down and explain it and try and answer these common questions. And today, Steph, it's episode 18B. So it's a follow-up from last week's episode around exercise-associated hyponatremia. So our question was, what is hyponatremia and should I be concerned? So who have we got to speak to today around hyponatremia? Yeah, we have um, Dr. Alice McNamara. Uh, and um, yeah, we've, we're lucky enough to have her. She's a sports physician um, and she was a, um, she's previously been a, an elite level um, athlete, a rower. Um, and then from rowing sort of transitioned um, just by chance, I think, into a bit of stair climb racing. Uh, and um, yeah, now she, she just really loves getting outdoors and, and running in the trails. So she, she tends to go out and do some trail races when she can. Um, but I mean, I don't know how she fits it all in, Alan. She's like bloody sports physician with so many teams. You've, you've mentioned, you know, some of those being St Kilda and um, rowing as, as well. Um, plus, I'm sure there's lots of others. Uh, and, then, and then her training um, for sports physician training. Uh, and then she also does her the um, support on the weekends or whenever that is for the ultra endurance events for medical services. And I'm sure she does a stack of a stack of other things, but um, well, she's got kids as well, and she's yeah. always out paddling in the bay yeah. first thing in the morning. If you follow her on Instagram, yeah. so yeah, she uh, she packs a lot into each day. She does, that's for sure. Yeah, she does, and she's um, been lovely enough to do uh, one of one of my studies, um, and I guess that's where we got chatting a bit more because we've got you know four trials that. Um, we get to spend together. Uh, so I got to really soak up all of, you know, her wealth of knowledge. And uh, we just got chatting about, you know, the work that she does do when she does the medical services for ultra endurance events. And we both thought, Alan, that that would be a really, you know, really informative topic for our, for our listeners today. So that's who we are lucky enough to have. Yeah. Yep, so we'll hear a bit about Alice's perspective as an athlete, but obviously her, her role as a doctor in supporting uh, various um, endurance events uh, around Victoria as well, and, and I guess her perspective on hypernatremia as she sees it from the, the doctor on the race course perspective. Mm, yeah, yep. Before we get stuck into that, some shout-outs that we've, we've got is... Uh, so both you and I know Jace um, from Infinite Nutrition Australia, uh, and he's just said that he's found our um, podcast really informative and uh, and really great to listen to. So thank you, Jace, for that lovely feedback. And also um, Beck uh, from BKT uh, Trail Running Store down in Adelaide, from from my hometown, has has said similar that she's found it really really great and educational as well so uh thank you guys for that um feedback and yeah i think that's that's probably it we're yeah 
Yep, so I guess if anyone else has any questions or feedback they'd like to give us, they can do so via social media at The Long Munch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Um, or if you'd like to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, you can certainly do that as well. We really appreciate that as well. Um, but yeah, if you have any particular topics or questions that, that you're debating with your uh, fellow runners, cyclists, or triathletes that uh, you'd like us to, to answer here or explain in a bit more detail, feel free to shoot it through on social media. We're always looking for other topics to tackle. So um, yeah, we're really happy to, to hear from you. Mm. Oh, and so the final thing I should say, I guess, because we're talking to Dr. Alice McNamara today, is obviously she's talking about things from a doctor's perspective. Um, but like all podcasts, you know, this shouldn't be construed as medical advice. Um, and you should always get, you know, your own personal assessment and opinion from from your own doctor. Um, there's plenty of useful information in here, I think, that people can take away from it. But just bearing in mind, it's not doesn't constitute individualized medical advice. Yeah. Well said. Excellent. Shall we get stuck into it? Yeah, let's do it. So let's hear our interview, episode 18B with Dr. Alice McNamara. All right, Dr. Alice McNamara, thanks so much for joining us on The Long Munch. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on The Long Munch. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, now, you're a, a medical doctor and you're a sport and exercise med medicine registrar, but you um, you work in a few different settings, sports medicine clinic. Uh, you work as a, a doctor with uh, Rowing Australia um, and more recently also with St Kilda Football Club, I believe, in their women's team. Um, and also, I guess what we're uh, having you here tonight is to talk about some of the work you do with endurance medical services. So you work at sort of ultra endurance um, events, uh, particularly in... I've seen some of the pictures on Instagram from the, the team uh, in sort of places like the high country of Victoria where there's lots of running events and so on. Not, not the worst office to have. Um, but to start off with, I guess, to talk about your own exploits as an athlete because you've done, you had quite the career in, in rowing yourself. You won a couple of world championships and then you done the stair climb running, which is always one of those things that you see little snippets on the news occasionally when they run up the Eureka Tower, but that's the kind of stuff that, that you're into and you've done a few around the world. Yeah. Um, well, I have to say stair climbing was sort of a, a fortunate sort of exploit off the back of rowing, I'd say. Rowing was my, you know, passion and thing that I trained a lot for, for at school and then after school um, with the Melbourne University Boat Club and then made a couple of Australian teams as an under-23 um, and then the senior teams after that. So I had a really good sort of 11-year stint of rowing with Rowing Australia and um, in the lightweight women's cruise. So I I guess that was my first sort of ex exploration into hydration because in lightweight rowing we have to weigh in two hours before our event and um, often mm. that involves a bit of dehydration and then trying to replenish some fluid before you race. Anyway, um, that's probably led me into a bit of an interest into hydration. But um, off the back of the rowing, yes, we did some stair running. The rowing races are a two-kilometre race, which is about seven minutes um, in the lightweight double skull. So put that in perspective, the time that it took me to um, do the Eureka stair climb in, in Melbourne, the first time I did it was nine minutes. So it's actually very similar physiology. Um, I mm -hmm. didn't enjoy the scenery of the stairwell compared to a rowing course. <laughs> but So I kind of wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. Um, so it was hard work, got to the top, and that adrenaline rush you get from a, a nine-minute full-out effort was 
exceptional. And then I got actually a trip over to New York to do the New York um, Empire State Building run-up, which is an um, iconic sort of international event back when we could travel. So very lucky. And um, after, after the New York one, I ended up having um, – a couple of emails that came to me sort of saying there's a vertical world circuit so you can travel with around the world and do these stair climbs. So it, it was sort of my thing that I did on the side while I was um, rowing and then when I finished my rowing it kept me going during my medical school. Yeah, cool. And, and it's such a, I guess a, for most people, quite obscure thing to get into. How did, like what gave you the idea to do it in the first place? Uh, the, the Eureka Stair Climb needed, um, they, they put the call out to the VIS where I was rowing at the time, um, saying they would like a, an elite athlete team to participate. So we ended up going down on a Sunday morning very early and just giving it a go. Um, as part of the sponsorship deal, there was a, a charity which was crossed over between the two organisations. Um, yeah, and it was a, a fluke, um, successful run-up, I would say. Um, so I was lucky. I was fortunate to get a first entry. And, and, you know, a lot of people would kill to be um, given a go in one sport. So I was really lucky to get a go in too. But uh, like I said, it's talent or um, physiological transfer because it was the same sort of energy systems and mindset to just get through in a rhythm with breathing and using quads and glutes and lungs to get yourself up a, a flight of stairs was similar to propelling yourself down a rowing course. So, yeah, very yeah, fortunate. Enough. Cool. Um, now, you also do some trail running as well. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm sort of a, a, a recreational trail runner. I wouldn't say in any sense, like near, not nearly as good as Steph over there. Um, but I really enjoy it because it's physical, you're in the outdoors, greenery, it's social um, and the trail scene and the trail people are awesome. So I found it as a less competitive for me, but also just, but you can have a, a good go at it, a physical out, output, but I just found it, it was a bit more of an adventure and that's what I was seeking at, at a certain time. We did bushwalking with my family when I was a kid. So I always enjoyed being out on the mountain for a long time. Um, but you can see more of it when you go fast. You can, if you run along, you can actually cover more ground. So I enjoyed that. I do much prefer the hilly ones than the long ones. I'm happier if it's only a couple of hours. <laughs> yep. That's enough for me. Fair enough. Which is why you did Steph's study, which is yes. shorter than my study, which is five hours. <laughs> I've nearly convinced, I've nearly convinced Alice to do yours. She's like so close. <laughs> so, Alan, five hours. Thanks. My question for you is, can they have a coffee beforehand? <laughs> yes, yes. As long as it's consistent between the two trials, I will allow caffeine. Yes. <laughs> She'll do it. Easier than hey, yours solid. then, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's let's pull out the calendar after this. <laughs> all right, so switching, I guess, from uh, you know uh, Alice the athlete to Alice the doctor now. Um, as we said before, you know you've worked uh, you know for medical support teams for you know trail running events and things like that in Victoria. Was it through the sort of the trail running that you were already doing, and I guess your career in medicine that sort of combined those two? Is that how you got involved with that side of it? I think it was a little bit earlier because when I was rowing and studying at the same time, I ended up having a few blocks of time off study when rowing was really amped up. So then I ended up with a few odd weeks where I didn't have much going on in terms of uni. 
So I picked up a few courses of interest and I went down to Tasmania and I did this expedition medicine course um, through the University of Tasmania, which fed me on to a wilderness first aid. Um, and then after I finished, I did my emergency medical certificate through the College of Emergency Medicine before choosing sports med. So I ended up thinking about a little bit about um, first aid management where you don't necessarily have the privileges of a hospital environment. And I think when you go out on the trails and you've got some sort of science or medical knowledge and you guys would be thinking about this all the time if you're out with other people is that often you feel somewhat responsible for sort of think, looking out for friends and mates and, and it, it really gave me a motivation to make sure I kind of understood what was going on with physiology and knew what to do even if I had minimal supplies and when to be worried. So I did those courses out of interest, but also I thought it would be useful in the future. So I did a bit of background. Now, a lot of people that do those courses, um, either they go full on and they work in places like Antarctica or because the college of the UTAS course has an affiliation with the Australian Antarctic Division. So everyone who goes down to Antarctica has to do this course. But also, if you can't access those work opportunities, often you you just have the knowledge, but you never apply it. Um, but there's actually a lot of people now who are doing events in very remote situations and very extreme activities in remote situations. So I was fought, I sort of found um, one of the doctors who worked for EMS or Emergency um, Endurance Medical Services on on social media, and I sent him a random text message on Facebook Messenger or something. Um, and he said you should get in contact with Deb Sharp. Deb Sharp's the medical director at Endurance Medical Services. Um, and they have had really only just started as a company, but now they've been operating for about three years. Um, and they're very sought after in terms of covering um, trail running events in Melbourne um, or out of Victoria, probably in New South Wales, um, which is really important. Um, I think with more and more people going and doing the events in these remote places, we need better first aid in places that you can get out to see what's going on on the trails. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, and I guess thinking about that, you know, you, you've obviously supported probably a number of events now. Are there sort of common things or the things that are the more common that you see out there that you have to be called on to, to do? Yeah, I think the most common thing we see is blisters, um, both on the feet and, you know, back shoulders from people's packs as well, depending on how humid it is, depending how used to this equipment they are with new packs or socks or runners that are runners in a new, trail shoes in a new. Um, some events that have lots of river crossings, we see lots of blisters and what, when they diverted the course at hut to hut in, in Victoria up at Mount Buller, um, two years ago, they diverted the course to go through the Haukwa River. I think it was 13 river crossings in, in one go. So we had a lot of, I would say, trench foot and then blisters. So blisters is definitely the most common. Um, then I would say sort of exhaustion-related illness, and that can be climate-related with heat as well, um, electrolyte imbalance, which we'll talk a lot about, I guess. Um, that comes under a, a, to a topic that's kind of often difficult to decipher, Um other than the sort of exhaustion kind of illnesses, you've got sprained ankles. Often people roll their ankles when um, they're just getting a bit tired and they stumble and we get lots of lateral ankle sprains. And also lateral knee pain. If you start a race, if you start a race with a big descent, for example, hut to hut, straight down um, four mile spur, a lot of people get patellofemoral pain on the outside of their knees as soon as they get down to the first aid station, they're already sore. So we get a lot of knee pain as well. 
Um, and then there's the weird and wonderful things. Like we've had a couple of major traumas where people have run into branches, head injuries. Um, mm. Yeah, all sorts of things. Uh, groin pain. I sent someone to emergency with testicular pain once he had a torsion. So there's all sorts of weird stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, wow. You've said two that I've just had. Like I remember when I was doing um, a race, Tarawera um, oh, 60K, yeah. um, at, in the last like oh few minutes, I twisted my ankle like three times oh. um, and that was fatigue. Yeah. And then um, Blue Mountains, known now as UTA, yeah, um, yeah hit my head with a branch. <laughs> um, with a branch. So... <laughs> I got two of, two of those. So, they're, yeah, I'm glad that they're common and they're not just a um, Steph uncoordinated thing. Oh, gosh, yeah. And at the end of the race, that's when you can often see that because you sort of you get a little bit dizzy, a little bit spaced out, you know, your cognition's going a little bit due to lots of different reasons. But, um, yeah, you're not alone, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> good to know, good to know. Um, so, uh, I guess, um, in our, in our previous episode, so, uh, we had the lovely Alan, um, talk about exercise associated hyponatremia, um, and its symptoms. Uh, in terms of that, have you come across that with, with an athlete in these events? Yeah, um. It's a really it's a really good topic and one that we need to be always aware of. But I would say I reckon it's seen me more than I've seen it, um, which is probably why there's. I mean, uh, Alan did a really good job. I listened to the one last week um, at explaining about exercise-associated hyponatremia and sort of what we know and and where the jury sits between it all. And he he went through what what's a really good resource in the consensus statement from 2015 as well in that it's actually it's actually known to be really common in elites in, in endurance sport and I think the number that you said Alan which I've read as well it can be up to 50 percent of athletes that do these events have low blood sodium mm. um, and so it runs past me every day I'm pretty sure when I'm out on the field I'm on out on the trails but at the point that it becomes symptomatic and I see it, it's often very difficult to work out that's what it is. Um, mm. And also you have to be really, really careful with electrolytes and um, jumping at shadows, jumping too quickly to do anything about them until you know that they are not going to correct themselves. So, um, yes, it is common and I have probably seen it way more than I've thought to stop someone and pick them up. Um, but it is difficult. So if someone is, has symptoms that are cognitive related, so if, if they're lightheaded, if they're dizzy, if they have a headache, they're the first things that I think about, is there an electrolyte imbalance? Um, but it can, it could be something else. It doesn't always have to be low blood sodium. Yep. Um, and what helps you kind of decipher from that? What sort of tests would you would you do if I guess you come across an athlete that that you potentially may suspect? Are there further tests that you can do at these events to to sort of 
nut that out a bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, taking half a step backwards, it's sort of like, why do we, why do we worry? And if anybody hasn't listened to the episode last week, I strongly recommend you do, because that's a really good summary of hyponatremia, low blood sodium and why it matters. But sodium is the main electrolyte that determines how the cell volume or how big a cell is in our body. So if you have low blood sodium, um, then the the cells can swell and you have an excess of water in your body and that involves all cells, including the ones in your brain. And so it's the cell swelling in your brain that concerns us the most. And when the brain swells a lot, it's, it's in a, a skull, so it's in a contained box and if it swells a lot it can end up herniating out the bottom that's very rare but in that's the way to think about it is that's the point we don't want to get to so we don't want to let the sodium go so low and sit low for a long time that it's actually going to affect your brain function you can have long-term neurological effects and actually has killed people in the past um, mostly from over drinking so that's why we worry so what we, if I was in an emergency department and someone came in with altered conscious state, or they were their GCS, as we say, is off, and um, often these are older people who take lots of different medications, and often that's what drops their electrolytes, particularly their sodium. But if someone comes in with an altered GCS, they usually score a set of blood tests and a CT of their brain. And we usually look on the blood tests for abnormal electrolytes, and if it's low blood sodium, our job is to work out how long it's been low for because some people who are particularly who are older have low blood sodium all the time and they're actually really tolerant of a chronic low blood sodium. But with athletes, normally they come in with a, um, a normal blood sodium. That's probably a generalisation because we don't know what your blood sodium was before you started your race, but we expect that it's going to be more normal than one of these um, older people with low blood sodium chronically. Um, so if someone comes into the emergency department, they have a low blood sodium, then we try and work out why it's low and then they usually end up spending time in hospital while you correct it slowly or observe them. Um, but in the um, on the trails, um, someone comes in and we think they've got low blood sodium. We want to know if it is low blood sodium and the best thing to do at point of care would be pull out your handy um, ISTAT and measure their electrolytes. That would be great if we had that and we weren't – at a temperature that the ice debt doesn't work, for example. So that's the first thing I'll say is that unfortunately with trail events, we're often in, in mountains and in cold conditions and often the ice debt wouldn't work if we had one and often we don't have one. <laughs> so that that's one thing. Um, so the wilderness first aid guidelines say that you need to try and work out if someone – the the differential is that they're, they're dehydrated or they've got heat-related illness – so what you're trying to work out is, is this person confused and dizzy because they're dehydrated or they're hot or they've got low blood sodium? So you look for the other things. So what you need to look for is, is this person, have, have they got dry mouth, dry mucous membranes? Can they make any spit? Um, if you've got a blood pressure cuff, which we always do, um, can you take a blood pressure and a heart rate with them lying down and then standing up? and then see if the blood pressure and the heart rate respond appropriately. Um, if someone's got low blood volume or they're, they're dehydrated, your heart rate goes up too much um, and your blood pressure drops. So you get a response that's inappropriate for trying to regulate your blood pressure and heart rate from lying down to standing up. That's called orthostatic hypotension. Um, so 
that's what I would do clinically if I didn't have any fancy devices to measure sodium. If someone's dehydrated, I'm much more likely to observe them and try and push some fluids orally. But if someone, if, if I don't think it's dehydration, I'm going to say don't drink anymore and I'm going to restrict their fluids because that's actually how we correct a sodium is that we, we re- fluid restrict someone and don't let them drink. Yeah. Um, so good good response because so that's basically how you decipher between the two whether someone's dehydrated or they potentially have EAH, exercise-associated hyponatremia. Um, so if... Um, then, yeah, you suspect that they do. You restrict the the fluids. Um, is there anything else you do? Are you stopping them from um, continuing uh, the event? Yeah, the period of observation is really important and often that's not what people want to do. So if they look a bit out of it and the medical person tells them to come and sit down in the tent, they often really don't want to sit down. And do you know that time that we can watch you is really critical because at you, your your observations and your physiology can change a lot from when you look terrible coming into an aid station to if you've been sitting with us for five minutes, we can actually get a good gauge of how you are. Um, so, I mean, a recent run that we managed to get done this year was hut to hut. So I was at Pike's Flat, which was is very – it's a two-hour four-wheel drive from Mount Buller and we didn't have – we had four-wheel drive transport but we our plan was to get a helicopter if we needed something quickly um, or drive someone out to Buller and then down to Mansfield. So we didn't really have much um, ability to get people out. We just had to uh, get a, a good assessment on safety and keep people and manage them as we, we saw fit. We had a, a mini setup, so we had um, a little a little tent with um, all of your devices to measure um yeah, A, B, C, D, we had observations, we had a defibrillator, we had cannulation stuff, we had a few medications we could give through IV. Um, we had stuff to warm people up, cool people down, um, and we had good radio systems. So we, we had a bit there, but really we relied on the volunteers who were at the aid station to have a look at people who were coming in and work out how well they looked because that's the first test. The first test is, does this person look good or do they not look good? And if they don't look good and someone says to you, can you just come and sit over in the medical tent for a bit? That's the that's the main thing that I want to express here. It's a really good um, five minutes of your race just to make sure that you're okay and you're safe to go. It's going to make sure, it's going to actually mean that you have a better run after. We don't always keep people forever, but if you can actually stabilise with us and then we're confident that you can keep going, then... Um, it's way better for us and it's way better for you. So if we bring people over to the tent, um, sit down for five minutes and see what changes. So we we get a first set of observations, which is heart rate, blood pressure, temperature. Um, And we actually didn't have an ISTAT this year. So that's something we had to go clinically. Um, And we were finding a lot of people would come in really hot with a very high heart rate and then they would get really cold all of a sudden. So that to me is hypovolemia. That to me is that person's dehydrated because all of a sudden they've shunted their blood um, or they didn't have enough blood to keep their skin warm as soon as they cooled down. So these people got really cold really quickly and they're often really nauseated and they were vomiting. So um, in that situation – my key was let's stop them vomiting. So we had a few people that got anti-vomiting medications and then they could take fluid orally. And once they'd had enough fluid and they were going to walk for a bit and they were with someone else, I was happy for them to go because it was only a couple of Ks onto the next aid station. But um, 
we had to watch them for a while to make sure that actually happened. If they didn't improve or we just weren't confident with how they were going on their feet, they ended up making a joint decision with us that they'd go out in a four-wheel drive. So, yeah, um, I can't remember what we were exactly talking about <laughs> the question, but I think that's it's, for, it's recognition first and using the volunteers to first make the call is this person, do they look good? Do they not look good? And then when they come over to us, we do some observations, we check their conscious state um, and then we go from there. Yeah. Yeah, you answered it. It was, you know, do you let them sort of keep running or you you stop them and, and what do you do after that? So Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's good to know. Um, and uh, so then what about um, scales? Do, do you find that using um, body weight measurements in these types of events are useful um, to, to tell you um, anything or um, what do you think are a waste of time? Well, I actually haven't been involved in races that do this. So it's interesting because we, we never have at, at the ones in Victoria um, – I think it's really important from an individual perspective if you're an athlete that you know what your body weight is. Um, And I I think Lewis James on his podcast that you guys did, I can't remember what episode it was, Alan, sorry. Uh, 3A. Yeah, yeah, I actually thought that that was excellent. Um, And he he sounds a little bit of a crazy cat in that he does it himself and a bit of – he likes to science experiment on himself. But it's actually a really good thing to understand what your body weight loss is normally in terms of how much you sweat on an hourly basis. So if you can at some stage do a test on yourself so you know what your hourly sweat rate might be and loss, I think that's a really good idea. Um. We don't do it, but if you know what your approximate sweat rate is, then that's going to actually dictate a little bit in terms of what you limit your drinking to in your race. And so I really I really agreed with him that you should do weigh yourself, go out and do a run in a warm condition or whatever you would say would produce a, a reasonable sweat rate and weigh yourself after. And if you were going to be pedantic, you'd probably go out for a 10-minute jog to start your sweat going. And then you'd weigh yourself and you'd then run for an hour at your current sweat rate so you don't lose that first 10 minutes of starting sweating and then weigh yourself after. And that's your, I would say, if you were in the ballpark of a couple hundred mils each way, maybe less than a couple hundred mils, but just limit your drinking there, then you know. So I think you don't rely on the race to have the scales before and after because often they won't. But understand what your body weight loss is normally and and then if it's hot, it's probably going to be a tiny bit more. And if it's going to be cold, it's going to be a tiny bit less unless you're wearing lots of clothes. Yep. And also on that body weight thing, um, I did read some of the references from the consensus statement once. I was interested in the Western States one where they did um, did weigh people as part of their study, looking at how much sodium well, they were looking for rates of hyponatremia at Western States, which is the 160K race um, in very hot conditions in the US. And they actually found a lot of them lost weight over the period of the race, but they still had low blood sodium. So it doesn't always fit that even though you you know, you know don't put on weight because you're over-drinking, that you can still lose weight and have low blood sodium. Um, But whether they were symptomatic from that is probably less likely. The people that get symptomatic are the ones that end up being heavier or maintain their body weight over the endurance period. Does that, is that, Alan, is that what your understanding? 
reading yeah, that Yeah, because essentially, I mean, the low blood sodium is a surrogate for osmolality, which is sort of dictating those fluid shifts, as you said, like into the cell or out of the cell. Um, but ultimately, as you said, those symptoms are caused by swelling of the cells. So you can have a low blood sodium, but if the volume hasn't increased, you're not swelling those cells. Um, you might, you know, you're probably changing the ratio of water inside the cells versus outside. But if they're overall not expanding compared to what they are normally, then you don't get those sort of symptoms. And um, yeah, that's sort of a bit of a contentious one, what they call hypovolemic hyponatremia, where, you, you know, as you said, you lose weight, but you still get hyponatremia. Um, some people debate whether it can even happen or not, but I think the um, the consensus, at least at this stage, is that even if it does happen, it, it, it's not dangerous, at least in the same way that, that you know, over drinking does because it doesn't cause that overall cell swelling in the same way. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I would be less cool. worried about those ones, um, but because you're, you're sort of low on both, if you get what I mean. But mm. um, yeah, it mm. can still happen. So if the event's got scales, then yes, use them, but um, otherwise take it on yourself to understand your own normal sweat rate. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and Steph mentioned before, like obviously talking about how you would um, treat someone when you come across someone who you suspect has hyponatremia. And as you said, obviously the first step is to stop them from drinking so you're not making things worse. Um, and I guess over time, like if they leave it long enough, uh, theoretically the kidney should sort of kick in and balance things back out again, flush out that extra water over time. Uh, has it got to the point or have you seen examples where um, you've had to sort of go to another level of sort of intervention in terms of like just stopping drinking wasn't adequate? You had to go further, I guess, in terms of how you treat it? Um, no, fortunately for me, I haven't had anyone obtunned in front of me and look in a coma or seizing. So my my litmus test is, is this person stable? Are they improving? Um, if they stop running and they stop drinking, it's very unlikely that they get worse, um, but they can, so you need to watch them. But if they don't have any um, central nervous system signs like seizures, coma, then actually observation is the best thing. So in emergency, in the emergency department, it's very rare that you would give anyone very salty fluid through the drip. So the gold standard treatment for really severe hyponatremia is hypertonic saline and it comes in a bottle of 3% saline and you should try and give 100 mils if someone's deteriorating quickly. But to be to be honest, I think you'd be you, you have to be really careful and sensible when you're in remote situations. So if you need to cannulate someone and give them something through the drip, you do it. But if you can get away with not, you shouldn't do it. Um, you should mm. make sure you do these treatments in a situation that someone can be observed and monitored for the longer term. And that might be with paramedics or that might be in an emergency department. But, you know, I'm very aware that there are very well-run events, for example, the Hawaiian Ironman has a basically a hospital set up at the finish line and it's got emergency physicians and nursing staff and people that are, are running basically a hospital at the finish line. But you've got a set up there where you've got road access to all of the um, parts of the course. You can transport people to this hospital. They can run their own hospital without having to use the local hospital services at Kona. And, and they have the ECG monitors. They can basically run it like a an ICU in the Hawaiian Ironman tent. But that's not what we have down at Pikes Flat. 
So if, if I think that I can give you some anti-nausea medication into your leg or into your bum and you stop vomiting and I can watch you for long enough and you look stable, you're going in a car back to Mount Buller where we watch you longer, you're not drinking, um, and then if we need to watch you further, you're going to Mansfield or Wangaratta Hospital. You're not having me give you a hypertonic saline down at Pikes Flat if I don't have to. But if we, I, yeah. the consensus statement talks about salty hypertonic saline through the drip like it should be um, considered equally as emergency treatment like a defibrillator. So we have it. We definitely have it with us. If someone's seizing, if they've got a coma, and if I have to give it right then, I'll give it. But you know, if I don't have to, I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. And, and certainly, as we talked about last week, um, you know, the and, and, you know, from what you've just described, you know, someone getting to that stage is actually pretty rare. Um, you know, while some of these studies say, you know, up to 50% of people get hyponatremia, as we said, most of those people, we would never even know they had hyponatremia. They've got no symptoms. There's uh, no major issue um, because it's it's not that severe. Um, and so, yeah, you certainly don't have to go to that stage, which is great. It's funny, actually, um, when I read that, um, well, you know, you hear about it, but I think I've probably had it, you know. <laughs> I've probably been mm. there and you were probably the same, Steph, you're nodding. Yeah, it's um, when you just don't feel good at some stage towards the end of the race, you know, you might, you, you're, you rely on your physiology to correct a lot when you're running Um if you ever take someone's blood lactate when they're running, they've got the same lactate as someone who's very, very unwell in the emergency department. They're nearly dead, but you've got a high lactate when you're running. So our physiology jumps around so much under the stress of the endurance exercise. So I think I've, I've um, definitely would have had it. We don't have um, continuous sodium monitors in our, in our kit for tracking people's sodium, but maybe that's in the future. Quite like how we monitor temperature in the body. Oh, yeah. So a rectal sodium probe. Is that what you're thinking, Steph? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Steph, you had to bring the GI tract into it, didn't you? <laughs> Every episode. <laughs> anyway, um, so if, if someone is in that state where, you know, you stop them drinking, you, you allow them to recover, how long does that take usually? Like does someone recover like within a couple of hours or is it like the rest of the day or a few days? What, what's the sort of the time course of recovery for someone who has that kind of sort of mild to moderate hyponatremia? I think it would be um, towards the end of that day uh, within a couple of hours. Um, you really, you want to see someone's urine return um, and sort of be able to keep them at a low keep them on a low fluid intake so you're sort of regulating urine but if you're if you're worried about someone they should be in a, a care facility where you can actually do some observations take some electrolytes um check the urine so you know it's, we're usually in australia we're not too far we could um have you at the bright medical center having some bloods and a urine assessment to see actually how far off your blood versus your urine, sodium and osmolality is and and how long we, sh we expect that to take. But um, the body's pretty good at regulating and conserving, particularly with electrolytes. And if you drop it quickly, it should actually return it pretty quickly. Um, and if you've dropped it over a couple of hours of running, um, it should actually bounce back up as, as your hormones and your kidneys regulate. So I would expect that comes back up to normal sort of that day. 
Um, but if, if someone needs to be observed for 24 hours, we're usually, you know, monitoring bloods, urine and, you know, things like um, CK if it's rhabdomyolysis as well. I mean, there's lots of things that if someone's exhausted from an ultra run that they get tracked for in hospital. Um, but I expect that day you should bounce back. And theoretically, the sodium part of it means that you actually recover pretty quickly. I mean, you you should be right to go as soon as your um, your electrolytes have normalised. Um, you just want to make sure that the rest of your body is right to go in terms of your muscles and your kidneys and make sure all of those other, other organ systems are going well, that you haven't had any secondary injury. But it's, if it's just the electrolytes, that usually corrects itself reasonably quickly. Mm, yep. Kidneys are pretty smart things. Um, you just mentioned rhabdomyolysis there. Often people kind of associate that with um, issues around hydration, electrolyte balance. Can you tell us a little bit for people who sort of have heard the term but maybe don't know what it is, like what it is, what it means and, and what it's got to do or not got to do with, I guess, hydration and and electrolyte balance? Uh, rhabdomyolysis is um, basically, I think of it as an overheating or a melting of the muscle end up, you end up with um, myoglobin, um, which is a component of um, muscle basically leaking out into the blood. And so you end up with terrible muscle pain um, and these big particles floating around your blood, which you can clog up your kidneys. So the big danger of rhabdo is that you get renal damage. So that's, um, that you get dark urine as well. So if you ever do coke-coloured um, urine and you have, you've are been really sore and fatigued, you need to go and be seen um, in an urgent care facility. And they do a test called creatine kinase and they see if that's elevated. And if that's up, then you probably score yourself some intravenous fluid and that's to the normal saline, so the same concentration normal as your blood. And that's to flush through your body so that you actually protect your kidneys. Um, so we have, don't have chronic renal damage. Now, that in that situation, you need to see a sports doctor or um, your general practitioner to make sure that you, you have a resolving CK and that your renal function is monitored. And if your kidneys are recovering, then that's, that's fine. Otherwise, you need to have some specialist follow-up um, and you'll need to have some time off exercise. I think there is, there is a, um, a period of you have to stand out for a while while you actually recover from that because that's, that's significant. Um, in terms of making sure your kidneys are functioning fine. Yep. Okay. But it sounds like the the underlying cause of it, I guess, is is a body temperature issue rather than an electrolyte issue. Yeah. 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 Exhaustion yep. as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there any, as far as you're aware, or, or from your experience working on events, for people that maybe have experienced hyponatremia? Does there seem to be like a predisposition? Like if you've had it once, you're more likely to have it again or is it just sort of a, a random thing? Um, I think from my reading, it's actually quite common in in the slower part of like people who are running slower with more capacity to drink because it really is a function of um, over drinking or over hydrating. So with the ultra running, we carry our fluids with us. So if you can actually drink all race if you wanted to, you could fill them up at every aid station and you've always got, you know, a couple of small bladders on your front and a big bladder at the back. Um, so you could actually drink quite a lot. So long duration and lots of time to drink is a problem. Um, exercise intensity where you're not actually sweating that much, then you don't need to drink as much, but sometimes people feel thirsty as they're going along. 
So exercise intensity tends, if you someone really doing an intense exercise, often they're not really at risk of hyponatremia because you can't drink much and also they are sweating at a higher rate. But if the exercise intensity is lower and you're going for longer, then you tend to be at risk of drinking more. Um, I think there's something about small body types as well. There's less less room for error. Um, so, yeah, smaller people, long duration and, and a slower running pace are probably the higher risk factors. Um, if someone's had it in the past, then, you know, they I would suggest they should see one of you two to get a good strategy for their um, nutrition and hydration for their, their runs because often it's just that they've calculated things wrong or they haven't calculated and they've been drinking because they're thirsty um, and they're tired so they think they should drink a bit more. Um, and, and thirst is a really interesting thing. I think thirst is sometimes driven physiologically and sometimes driven psychologically by the brain. So um, uh, another thing on go, people go back and listen to your other podcast, that study that Lewis James did where they actually gave people fluid through a nasogastric tube that was fantastic. So you had people didn't know how much fluid they were getting and then um, they were still, I think they were asked to drink um, ad lib, um, so at, at, as to thirst and, and so you had people drinking even though they were already been given fluid. So it's sort of that if your lips are dry and you think you're thirsty, was that right or was it a, a temperature-driven thing? Uh, no, in that, in that one I think they were, they were given a tiny bit of fluid to try and prevent sort of dry mouth tricking people into they were trying to make sure they were kind of blinded to thirst so that whether they were getting lots of fluid through the nasogastric tube or virtually no fluid through the nasogastric tube they still drank the same amount of water orally to keep the the mouth from getting dry to make it less obvious whether they were getting the fluid or not so they were trying to i guess independently separate um physiological sort of hydration or dehydration from the thirst mechanism itself yeah that's excellent and that good Mm. explanation i think that's that's really important and and so that for runners practically that means yes drink to thirst but make sure you're actually thirsty so if you're hot make sure you do something to cool yourself down so if you're running through a river um you know get put something wet around your neck or wet your hat or try and cool yourself down make sure that it's not that you're just hot and bothered that make sure you actually manage your temperature first before you think, "Am I thirsty?" Um, because you need to drink as to, as per what you th- your normal rate of sweat is, or yes, to thirst, but also with an upper limit of what you think you should drink per hour, based on how much you normally sweat. So you shouldn't be in liters above that. Um, then you're going to get into trouble. So make sure you manage your temperature and try and manage your feelings of thirst before you actually need to drink. I mean, there's excellent studies actually where you can do mouth washouts of fluid and also of carbohydrate even to improve physical performance um, because the mouth has a whole lot of receptors um, that can make you feel better um, without even swallowing it. So, I mean, there's a few different studies along those lines which are really interesting and so the mouth is is almost a separate being from the body (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Mm. Yep. Definitely. Um, So I guess away from um, thinking and talking about um, exercise-associated hyponatremia um, and talking more about or looking more about what guidelines should be for particular ultra events, um, what type of factors should be considered in 
in order to determine, I guess, the most appropriate level of um, the type of medical services that are needed for an event. Um, so I guess if you're a, a, um, a ultra event organiser and you're planning to, to put on an event, um, what types of things do they need to consider to determine what they should have medical um, support-wise? Yeah, great question. And I think that's um, a space that's changing a lot in the last couple of years. Um, I think if you had, you know, um, no brand but some um, St Elsewhere's first aid sitting at the finish line where the people don't move from the van um, of an event that takes people out into the middle of nowhere, I think that's really dangerous because um, you get all sorts of people um, attracted to trail running events now and mountain biking events and anything that takes people out outdoors um, because, I mean, we're all locked down normally. <laughs> we're working from home or we're, we're working at work and if you get a chance to go out and do an – you want an outlet, a lot of people are choosing these events as recreational fitness things and, and maybe some people have trained up for their ultra distance but for a lot of people it's the biggest run they've ever done is these events. So you're really testing people at all levels of training – into pretty extreme physical tasks for them um, in, in remote environments. And it's awesome. Like that, these are the events that we all love, but we've got to put safety as, as a, an important factor. Um, so you need to know if you're an event organiser and there are some really good event organisers out there who are um, really getting on board with safety, but and it's in their interest as well, I guess. But um, it, it's, it's really important for them to know that when they send people out and they're following a course that they've marked that they can know how the how the field's tracking as it's going along. So event organisers need to know where the route's going um, and access points to the route. So whether you've got four-wheel drive tracks or um, if there's no four-wheel drive tracks, it might be by on, on foot, might be the only way you can get in somewhere, whether there's good road access, um, where the nearest hospitals are or medical facilities um, and the local paramedic service that might meet um, the local providers at the site. So, for example, EMS, who um, we've really developed our, um, our event management plans over the last couple of years, but Deb Sharp will write an, uh, an event management plan before each event um, where there's um, a contact list, a hierarchy of um, people that are responsible at the event plus the event management. Um, there are different policies that fit into that in terms of um, heat policy, lightning policy and a triage category where you've got cat one, two and three in terms of what we want to manage ASAP versus what can be wading the walking wounded the blisters can can hobble their way through if there's something that's really bad so we put snake bite for example into cat cat one where you've got you know um, unconscious patients um, cardiac issues and snake bite like these things need to be dealt with asap so that's cat one there's cat two which um often the electrolyte ones that or the the heat affected ones sort of fit into this one or just unwell where you're sorting them out they might pop into cat one or they might actually go into cat three depending on how they work out and cat three is people with blisters and sprained ankles and stuff which is not life-threatening but we do need to make sure these people get off a mountain before they get too cold or before it gets dark or things like that so 
you know, so you've got you've got to work out what your triage categories are, and you've got to have some management plans around lightning and, and heat as well. So, in terms of the race director, they need to understand the course. They need to know where they're sending people. They need to know the local services, and and they also need to know the numbers in terms of how many people are there. So, if you're running UTA, you need to have a pretty good medical setup and probably some more local services than if you're running a smaller event with with fewer participants, just based on statistics and the numbers that'll get through. Yeah, cool. Cool. Um, All right, so just to, to sum up before we move into our bonus round, Alice, I guess what we're saying here is if, I mean, the, the main thing, as we said uh, last episode and this one as well, is make sure you're not over-drinking during exercise because that's going to be the biggest risk factor in terms of developing exercise-associated hyponatremia. Uh, and I guess the other thing uh, from, from your perspective is that if someone's feeling they're getting those kind of symptoms, you know, headaches, dizziness, lightheadedness, those sorts of symptoms, um, don't assume that it's dehydration automatically uh, and you probably need to get some assessment from um, from someone like yourself out on the course to sort of differentiate whether it's dehydration or overhydration if, if you're not 100% sure because obviously the treatment for those are completely different um, and that can have important outcomes. The other thing I forgot to ask you earlier, um, often people will say, well, I think I'm getting hyponatremia because I'm getting puffy hands and feet. Um, is that a good good sort of signature of, of someone who's becoming overhydrated or can it be for so many other reasons? Yeah, it's definitely listed as one of the reasons. But, you know, when you're running and your hands are down by your legs the whole time, if you've had your hands running like that or you've got a tight backpack on, um, you're probably going to have a pooling of fluid in your hands anyway um, and around your ankles as well. Definitely, if someone's getting pitting edema in their shins, which is when you put your thumb in towards the tibia or your shin bone and you leave a, a thumbprint, that's fluid overload in the lung, in the um, legs. And I'll probably be wanting to put a stethoscope on to make sure your chest, you're not accumulating fluid in your chest as well because that's fluid overload generally in the body. But puffy hands, I'd say, are nonspecific. Um, some people tend to get puffy when they have their hands in a gravitationally down position for a long period of time um, and some people won't. So, yeah, if you want to run with your hands up for a while and see how that goes, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, definitely keep an eye out for it but it's not your main marker, yep. Um, and I just wanted to reiterate, I didn't think I mentioned Sorry. one other thing which is really important for um, participants is the mandatory gear that you're asked to take on the run. I think that's a really important thing just to make sure we, we tick off here in this conversation. So event organisers are getting really good at making sure that you take the gear that keeps you safe and the other participants safe and they're good at checking but that should be something that you don't try and skimp on as well as a participant. Um if there's a list for any conditions and it includes a certain amount of fluid, it doesn't mean you, you have to drink it all, but you need to have it on you in case you're out there for longer than you expect. Um, and your space blanket, which is really, really important in any situation that you're out in the wilderness, if you stop running and any 
you'll get cold and any temperature change can come through really quickly and you can get really cold really quickly. Um, You need a space blanket on you and it might be for someone you're with as well. So you just need to have a very light little thing, the silver thing. Um, We've used them in the past for flagging down emergency services as well. So if we've ever had to call a helicopter, we've pulled out everyone's space blankets and um, so that the helicopter can spot us through the trees wherever we might be. Um, that's sometimes really important that we've got enough little space blankets between us. Snake bandages, 100% important in any any situation that you're at in the Australian bush. Take one or if you're me, take two or three and make sure everyone else who you're with has one and knows how to apply it to your leg. That would be great. Um, and so snake bandages, space blankets and whistles, really important so that you can be found. You have to have a phone, you have to have the map downloaded on your phone as they ask you to and a spare charging system um, and and enough nutrition in terms of um, calories that you need and also that you might need if you got stuck out for a bit longer. Um, Plus take your own band-aids and um, blister management stuff, so tape and things like that in case you're a long way from an aid station and you need to do it yourself. And jackets. Um, If they ask you to take a waterproof jacket, make sure you've got a good one that's lightweight um, well worth making sure you're thorough there. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Good I know advice. that um, some athletes doing these big events can, um, they sometimes skimp on that stuff and or when they're asked to take mandatory gear like their jackets and the pants, they'll, they'll do it but they actually take um, like sizes that are way too small <laughs> for them so they've, they've got the gear but it's never going to fit them. Um, just because they want to go lighter. How lighter, much does lighter. that save you, though? Uh, uh, but, you know, if I know, exactly, exactly. So hopefully this is going to get the message out that um, it's not worth skimping um, if, you, if you end up stuck out there. And even if you're a fast runner, like something freakish can happen, you know, bad weather, um, yeah, you're much better off to make sure you're safe in the end. Yeah, we had a run that was called off due to lightning. Lightning wasn't predicted, but a lightning storm came through and they ended up stopping people beyond a certain marker and everyone had to stay the night out at the aid station um, if they wanted to continue for the next day because no one was allowed to run with lightning around. So these people had to spend the night in whatever they'd brought with them. (laughs) So sometimes it's not in your control. You might think you're the fastest, best runner and you're going to get through unscathed but sometimes the environment especially in the mountains can change really quickly and if if you don't have the gear to keep you warm and safe um, you're going to be in a lot more trouble sprained ankles can be life-threatening if they're in a situation that you you can't keep warm for the night Um, so you have to take the gear even if you think you're going to get through a win even if you're going to (laughs) win you have to take the gear yep yep absolutely all right. Well, I think it's time for our bonus round, Alice. So this is where our listeners find out a bit more about you. We've heard about stair climbing. We've heard about rowing. We've heard about medicine, um, but a few other things just to finish us off. So the first question, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now in terms of the medical side of things and obviously you know running and so on, what do you think you'd do instead? Uh, I like what I'm doing, but... Um I, yeah, being an athlete's really cool. Um, if I could be an athlete forever, I definitely would. Um, so rowing was really good, but maybe another sport. Um, ah, I know, uh, 
if I was really good at snow sports, I'd ski <laughs> or um, climbing, rock climbing. I could be a professional climber. But um, I think I'd like to have, have a job on the side rather than just do be an athlete all the time. But that could just be running tours for people in cool places like ski touring or trail run touring or something. Um, yeah, but I don't think you can be an athlete forever. <laughs> you have to, at some stage you realise you're getting old. <laughs> mm. Steph, I think we're going to have to take that question out when we do the athlete podcast because whenever we ask an athlete, their response is always, continue to be an athlete, just pick a different sport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that happens pretty much every time. Um, on that topic, or maybe, maybe not, um, anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Um, oh, I'm just pining going overseas at the moment and travelling and um Ever since I ran in the Dolomites, I need to go back. So in Italy, I need to go and do Lavaredo or the Ultra Trail over there. Um, it's just epic, amazing. And not only are the mountains great, but the pizza's good and, you know, Aperol spritz and everything. It's just, it's the balance is amazing. So in summer, going to the Dolomites is definitely on my bucket list ASAP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With the family, yeah, they can no. come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're invited um, they're invited <laughs> they'd yep. love it too yeah um, no bill bill's one of our first daters with ems so um he he's very got very good at blister management and also you know very good at making sure people don't move if there's lightning he's, he stands up tall and he tells people to stand still and drop their poles and everything so he's actually really good on the first aid and the um management of people so now bill's been really good on at ems um but he can definitely come to the dolomites he'd love it yeah. <laughs> um, now the Olympics is on at the time of this recording. By the time um, people listen to it, it'll be over. But um, I've seen on Instagram you and the family have been doing a lot of Olympic watching. Yep, other, I'm missing it now, actually, Alan. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know. I, I said sorry. to Alan, I can't believe we picked now when 1500 meters. Uh, like, it's the semis. It's the semis. It's all right. <laughs> it's will be okay. Um, uh, so other than the rowing, which I'm sure you've been watching a lot of, what's your other favourite Olympic sport to watch? I agree with Steph. I think the Aths is really cool. Um, I have to say, good addition has been sport climbing. Amazing. So, you know, the girls and the guys, they do the three yes. disciplines and it's fantastic. So I love watching the bouldering and seeing them nut out the roots and that's really, really interesting. It takes a while. Like I, I wish I wasn't working this week because I'd love to just sit down all day and watch the climbing. I <laughs> think yeah, that's my fave. Would you agree, Steph? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was crazy how fast they were going, like yeah. the speed climbing. But uh, I'm I'm going to take up bouldering actually when COVID lets us out. So um, oh, cool. Come come join me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my grip strength, I think, is going to let me down. They are incredible. I can't imagine how how strong you need to be through your fingers and your forearms. But yeah, I'll join you. <laughs> All right. Awesome. We'll have to figure out a way of getting like a bouldering wall in the lab, Steph, and we can do a study on Oh, yeah. Yes. And you two, you two can be that participants. Be, and Yeah, yeah it'd be fun. Yeah. Cool. Um, so final question for you, Alice. Do you live by any piece of advice or motto? Oh, I, I, I saw this one. No, I, I really don't have one. In fact, I – no, I can't even say I do. I think uh, – no, nah. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nothing. Nah. Fair enough. Yeah. Say say yes until you realise you say yes too much and then say no. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, but don't. Yeah, I just think um, sometimes in terms of like 
uh, athletes tend to, and I see it a lot, I, I saw it in myself when I was trying to train at a really high level, um, but now I see it in a lot of um, patients and teams and athletes that I work with is that athletes inherently put so much pressure on themselves to do everything to the nth degree. And that's what makes you great. And you have to do that for a period of time. You have to be really strict on yourself in terms of um, training and nutrition and um, recovery and rest and doing everything right. Um, But sometimes you can overthink these things. And sometimes if you turn down the volume on some of those intensities, it's actually better. And so even when it comes to what we're talking about today in terms of um, management of hyponatremia even to that point like sometimes taking a step back and watching for a while is the way to go so I think I've sort of become better at um a little bit less intense and a little bit more observation um as I've gone along so I don't know how you put that into a, a motto but go hard but also don't don't worry about taking half a step back with your intensity and, and relax a little bit because often we regulate ourselves better than we think and and I think in terms of balance, you're going to be happier and much better as an athlete if you keep a bit of balance about things. So I don't know how you say that, but that's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, maybe think before you act or don't rush into it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alice, uh, for your time and your expertise. Uh, hopefully everyone's got a lot out of this. Um, and hopefully uh, if people do get pulled aside at a medical tent or an aid station um, and people say, can you please sit over here so we watch you, they're doing that with your best interest in heart um, and that uh, you don't get narky at them for taking five minutes out of your race, um, that it, they're probably doing it for a reason and that... Um, Someone like Alice will be there to help you if you get in trouble. And a lot of the people who Thanks work in these medical fun. tents, they're all runners and we get that you want to keep running. So, you know, you can you can trust us. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yep. Awesome. And um, if, there, if there's a race director and they don't know where to start or they're looking into, you know, the medical side of things, is there a particular, like, um, site that they can go to to... Um, you know, access, I guess, the the team that you work with, um, how do they kind of um, find out how they even start with organising the medical side for their event? Yeah, definitely I would recommend for the local providers to, I'm biased, but contact Endurance Medical Services first and um, yep. go to them with some specifics about your event um, and, you know, if if you're willing to work in terms of putting together an event management plan um, with EMS, that'd be that'd be really good. I think in, if you're international, there's some really good wilderness um, medicine guidelines and the, um, the WEM guidelines um, and sort of I'm not sure exactly in terms of which countries run what, but there, there are associations all around the world now that, that love this stuff and specialise in this stuff, um, especially in the UK, I think. They're quite good. So just make sure that you've thought about your first aid before you decide to run a cool event um, because it's it's really up to the race and the event organisers to think really responsibly about who, who they're looking after. Um, and if you, if you need to be looking after people and you need to pay for emergency services, that's got to go into the race fee. Um, and you know, if you have to pay a race fee, it's to keep you safe. So that's okay too. Um, 
But if, if you're going out on a mission with a friend and it's not a formal event, this is probably a really good, important podcast to listen to in terms of just what to make sure you're doing when you're out on an adventure with a friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just go advice. running with Alice. Or you. <laughs> I'll get my, my nutrition <laughs> much better managed if I went with you. <laughs> or, or just 25 snake bandages with you, Alice. Yeah, 25 snake <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for your time, Alice. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank thanks you. for having me. All right. Thank you very much, Alice. Wealth of um, information as always. Uh, and I know it will be, yeah, really helpful for um, not only the participants themselves doing the events but also definitely the organisers and or the the actual support crew um, that even look after their own um, athletes doing the events. So just to summarise, I guess, some key points that that Alice um, made and sort of tying in what you um, discussed in the episode 18A, Alan, and now 18B, um, are you able to sum it up for the listeners? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, our question was, what is hyponatremia and should I be worried? So, I guess in a nutshell, hyponatremia means low blood sodium um, and exercise-associated hyponatremia is when that occurs during or, you know, immediately following, in that period following exercise. Um, what causes hyponatremia? Well, primarily it's drinking too much water um, and that dilutes your blood sodium, hence the, the low blood sodium. But the, the issues in terms of why we should be worried are more to do with the overhydration than they are the, the low sodium per se. The low sodium, I guess, is a, a marker of that. But when you get that, you get water moving into your cells excessively, and then you get the swelling of the, the cells. And obviously, as Alice you know, described in this episode, when that occurs in your brain, you know your skull's a, a fixed cavity. It doesn't have any room to move. Uh, and so that's when things get really dangerous. Uh, and so you can get all those sort of uh, severe symptoms of, you know, severe headaches, confusion, um, right through to, you know, seizures, coma. Um, and, and unfortunately, there's been, a, as I said last week, at least 14 deaths attributed to exercise hyponat- exercise-associated hyponatremia over the years. Um, so, yes, we should be concerned about it. But as both Alice and I mentioned in these two episodes, it is quite rare to get to that stage. You know, normally our kidneys take care of business and flush out the extra water. So if we drink too much, we just pee it out. Um, it's only in certain scenarios uh, and possibly in certain people um, where that doesn't happen to plan. And then that's when you get this fluid retention happening. Um, I think as we both mentioned, some of the symptoms in the kind of the early stages of hyponatremia uh, uh, kind of non-specific um, can be, you know, a bit of lightheadedness, a uh, bit of dizziness, a bit of headache, something like that. And I mean, those sort of symptoms can be caused by all sorts of things, whether it's you know fluid electrolyte balance or or other completely unrelated things, you know, postural related stuff as well. Um, so it is important that we kind of take a step back and and think through things before we take sort of drastic action on those kind of symptoms. And as Alice pointed out, you know, those could be construed as dehydration or overhydration. So you you then have to try and think about what are the factors that differentiate the two so you don't end up, you know, drinking all this extra fluid thinking you're dehydrated, but actually you're overhydrated and you're only making yourself worse. so from that perspective, she talked about, you know, if you're out in the field as a doctor, uh, you'd look at things like, you know, blood pressure. 
to try and get an indication of whether there's dehydration, you have that fall in blood pressure. Um, or, you know, preferably if you can get a blood sample, then you can actually measure the sodium concentration or the osmolality and, and know for sure. Um, in terms of, you know, how to prevent hyponatremia, I guess the biggest thing is, um, you know, not over drinking during exercise. And that uh, can be a combination of just drink, drinking to, to the sensation of thirst, but also um, a bit of sort of pre-planning and assessment and knowing what your roughly expected, you know, sweat losses are going to be. Um, and then putting some plan in place to basically make sure you don't overdo it with the fluid or, or in some cases, you know, particularly in the ultra-endurance events where there's more access to fluid, um, making sure that you don't have so much access to fluid that it is too easy to overdrink. So if you know that your sweat rate, say, 800 mils an hour, just plucking a number out of the top of my head, that you don't have, you know, two litres an hour of fluid available to you because you know you don't need it um, and, and you're just going to drink excessively. That said, as Alice mentioned, you know, if you're um, doing an event in quite a remote area, you do want to carry, obviously, contingency fluid in case you get lost or, or injured and spend a lot more time out in the wilderness than you had originally anticipated or expected in a race situation. So um, it, it might be around the, you know, just checking yourself in terms of how much you're drinking um, because for some people, thirst doesn't seem to be enough. Um, I guess the final thing I was going to mention, um, who's most susceptible to it. Alice sort of touched on this. So the people that are generally um, more that the, the back end of the field, the slower runners in the longer events, because you've got a longer time for that fluid overload to accumulate. Um, and it's easier to access and consume and tolerate fluid in those sort of lower intensities of exercise. Uh, one that we didn't mention actually in either episode I remembered after recording was um, that women are more susceptible to hyponatremia. Uh, and that's probably simply because, you know, as a generalization, you're going to have a lower body mass. And so it's easier to overhydrate a smaller body than it is to overhydrate a larger body um, through drinking excess fluid. So that's probably not a surprise there either. Um, and then the final thing I would say there is thinking about what to do if someone has hyponatremia. And, and the number one thing is obviously to stop drinking. Um, the number two thing is maybe have some things that are salty to try and draw that fluid back out of the cells uh, and then wait for the kidneys to sort of kick back into action and, and pee out the excess fluid. Um, obviously, there's more uh, advanced, I guess, medical interventions that can be done in terms of, you know, ultra-concentrated saline in an IV drip or something like that. But obviously, that's for a medical doctor to decide uh, if, when and how to do that rather than, than athletes themselves. So I think that's a, a fair summary on, on hyponatremia and where we're at at the moment, Steph. Great summary, as always, um, by Dr... Can I say Dr. Al? Oh, if you feel the need. <laughs> Don't think I've had that one before, <laughs> but yeah, that's right. Yeah, by Dr. Al. Um, <laughs> so we've got a, another really great one coming up and we've actually been wanting to do this one for a while, Alan. Um, we've kind of been, uh, I think, thinking about who um, is an is a ideal person to, to get in this area and who's kind of researching in that space right right now. Uh, so we, our topic is, or our question is, do I need more protein um, as an endurance athlete? And uh, I'll let you introduce who we have. Yeah, so our guest is going to be Associate Professor Dan Moore um, from the University of Toronto in Canada. So Dan's one of a, a bunch of researchers that uh, work in this particular space around protein for athletes. 
Uh, and the particular reason that we chose Dan is that he's done probably more than anyone uh, looking at specifically protein in the context of endurance exercise. Whereas a lot of the research in protein, as we'll hear in that episode, is focused on people doing weight training, trying to get bigger and stronger, that kind of thing. Um, but we wanted to talk to someone specifically about how uh, the work in this area and the concept of protein, I guess, applies to runners, cyclists, and triathletes. It's obviously an area that um, I think a lot of people in, in these sports tend not to think about too much. You know, people focus a lot on carbohydrate, on fluid and electrolytes and things like that. And, and obviously there's good reasons for doing that. Um, but often protein gets a bit neglected along the way and people think, oh, that's for people who go to the gym and lift weights. Oh, I don't need to worry about that. But um, yeah, so we'll, we'll get... Dan's perspective on that and you know do we need to focus on protein in these particular sports excellent yeah um and I know yeah I definitely the athletes that um that I work with um protein can definitely be a shortfall um and they can see that in just how they're feeling day to day and and then performance wise when that then bumps up and changes they really feel the the difference that it makes Mm. yeah Yep. So yeah, right. looking forward to, to talking to Dan about that. Excellent. So uh, if you'd like to give us any feedback, please do so on um, either our social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at The Long Munch, uh, and also you can listen to us on all your popular uh, podcast platforms. Otherwise, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next week. Yep, we'll do. See you, everyone. <laughs>